0: holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. While he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, who were casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on further, he found two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. He called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning. So we pray now by your Holy Spirit, you would so help us to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your Holy Word, so that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. They left their fishing boats and followed Jesus. They left behind their former life to say yes to a new life that God had called them into. They left behind that which was falling, fallen and falling away in their life, and they chose the full life that God was calling them into. They left their fishing boats and followed Jesus. But every disciple, every once in a while, will find themselves back in their old fishing boats. Every disciple who's been called to follow Jesus will at times find themselves back in those fishing boats that they left behind, falling away feeling like a fraud, looking at the failures mounting in their lives, both in home, in work, in their work in the world, tempted to say, maybe this discipleship thing just didn't take. It truly is the number one reason why people leave the church is they go through either a conversion experience or they go through a monumental coming closer to Jesus' experience and within a few months of that moment will encounter a major failure of one kind or another. They will fail as disciples and therefore will say, I guess it just didn't work on me. I guess I'm not really a disciple. I'm not really a Christian. You know, we're called to have a heart for the lost. I often ask myself do I have enough of a heart for the lapsed we we have a heart for the pagans outside the church but do we have a, a heart for the prodigals that have wandered away because the truth of the gospel the good news of God in Jesus Christ is this ought not be that this is not what ought to happen when we understand what really happens when a person is called to Jesus See, the good news of God we find in this text this morning in Matthew chapter four, beginning at verse 18, if you're with me, we see the good news that God takes us, we who are deficient, we who are broken, we who have not deserved this at all, and he makes us disciples. God comes to the undeserving, to the undesirable to the thoroughly deficient and he makes us disciples and he does it again not because we've deserved it not because we've earned it not because we're the cream of the crop he does it because he's declared that future over us he makes those who are deficient into disciples because of his divine declaration and what Jesus says is true of you and I is true of you and I. See, we need to start by unpacking the fact that the good news of God always begins with those of us who are deficient. It begins with our deficiency. It must begin with our deficiency. You notice as Matthew begins this calling story, we're reminded he's, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Galilee. Galilee, which in the first century was so twisted, so twisted up with paganism, sort of good Jewish life mixed in with so much pagan Roman life, so backwards, so the wrong kind of people, so not the kind of neighborhood where you wanna send your kid to school, so not the place where God could be at work. That's Galilee. It got a nickname We read earlier in Matthew chapter four, quoting the prophet Isaiah, it's called Galilee of the Gentiles, a Jewish region called Galilee of the Gentiles. It was that bad. And that's where Jesus is doing his ministry. And the ones he calls here, the four men here in their fishing boats, these are Galileans. Galilee was so backwards. It had such a bad reputation that you look in John chapter one, when Philip is calling Nathanael to come and meet Jesus. And he says, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And and Nathanael says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is in Galilee. That's his point. Can anything good come out of Galilee? Well, here's these four men, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. They're all Galilean, and oh, are they Galilean. I mean, look at Luke's version of the story. When Luke tells the story in Luke chapter 5, When Simon Peter figures out that he's in the presence of a holy rabbi, what does Peter say? He says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He's Galilean and he knows he's Galilean. He's broken and he's absolutely aware of it. And so are we. You know, we don't have to convince people that they're broken. We don't have to convince people they're sinners. We all know it in our core. A number of years ago, I was at a hockey game soon after we'd arrived here and we had season tickets, Monica couldn't go one night, so I sold the ticket and it was just me alone and the guy that bought the ticket was this younger guy and he's chatting me up the whole game and we're talking to the first period and about halfway through the second period and he's having a great time and I'm having a great time and he finally says, you're Canadian, what brought you to Texas? And I said, I don't think you want to know. <laughs> we're having such a good time. And he goes, what is it, bad? Are you like a drug dealer or something? Are you like running from the law? And I said, no, no, much worse, I'm a priest. And he said, you have ruined my nights. <laughs> we know we're broken. We know we're deficient. We know we are very Galilean. And this is where the gospel must begin. The good news must begin with that acknowledgement or it will not be good news at all. I love how Frederick Buechner puts it this way. It's funny, someone asked me the other day, this is the big, the big question among many of you now, Is like, what's in the little maroon book? He pulls it out every once in a while. What, is it some special book? Does he order it somewhere? The maroon book I bought on Amazon for about $3, okay? It's a notebook and I just write the longer quotes in because I don't wanna get them wrong. So I can memorize the rest, it's just the longer quotes. So there's nothing special to the purple book, except listen to this very special quote. Why did I even go there? Because I had to. Frederick Buechner, weird, weird quote sometimes. Here's what Buechner says. He says, the gospel's bad news before it's good news. And then he says this. He says, it is the news that man is a sinner, that he's evil in the imagination of his heart, that when he looks in the mirror in a lather, what he sees is at least eight parts chicken, phony, slob. It's true. We all know we're Galilean. We all could imagine Psalm 51 verse three pulled out of our own prayer journals or prayer lives. I know my transgressions are before you and my sin is ever before your face. We know this, we know we're deficient. We know we're Galilean. And yet Jesus takes that which is deficient and makes us disciples. Verse uh, verse uh, 19. Follow me, he says. It's the words of a rabbi calling a person to become a student, to become a disciple, an apprentice. Come and learn my life. Come be my intern in life. Come learn to live the way I live, to read the Bible the way I read the Bible, to live my life this particular way. Come and live your life and live my life. And let's go change the world together. That's what those words follow me mean. And it's amazing. It's the language that a rabbi would say to a person to be a disciple. And it's amazing in and of itself, but it's even more amazing that he speaks it over these four men in their fishing boats, especially if we understand what schooling looked like within the first century in Israel. See, the way schooling worked was that there were really three layers or levels of schooling. The first level of schooling in the first century, Judaism, was called Beit Sefer, the house of the book. And between age six and age 12, you would be learning in Beit Sefer, the house of the book, the Torah you'd be learning actually to memorize the Torah, if you can imagine. And so all the boys and girls would be learning the law of Moses. They'd be learning how to live according to it. And then when they got to 12 years of age, graduation seminar, graduation um, uh, ceremony, and off they go to find a trade or to learn how to take care of a house and raise a family. They're, They're beginning to raise families in the world. They're beginning to live as good people of God in the world, good Israelites in the world. They're graduated, they're done school. But the best of the best of the best would be specially invited, the elite, the really bright ones. They'd be invited into the next layer of school, which is called Beit Midrash, means house of study. And there they learn the rest of the Hebrew Bible, memorize it if you can imagine, And they learned how to interpret it. They learned how to apply it into their lives. And that was between age 13 and age 15. The real cream of the crop, okay? But then after that kind of graduate level education, they'd graduate as well. And they'd go off and find a trade, find a career, learn dad's profession, learn how to take care of the house and learn how to raise a family and be good Israelites in the world. But the best of the best Of the best of the best of the best, you get where I'm going with this, right? The best, the very cream of the crop. They would be invited into the final level of school called Beit Talmud, the house of discipleship. And this would be from a rabbi, a rabbi, a learned man in the faith who would say, I want you to now come and learn to live my life. You be my disciple in this house of discipleship, you'll be like me and learn my life. And they'd actually say things like this. They'd say, take my yoke upon you. Because the yoke of the rabbi was their particular way of applying scripture and living in the world. They'd say, that's my particular rabbinic yoke. And that's why Jesus in Matthew 11 says to all of us, take my yoke upon you. I keep referencing this because this is meant to represent the yoke of Christ. This is us saying, yes, we're disciples of Jesus. We're living his way, interpreting the scriptures the way he taught us, living the life he taught us, his yoke, his rabbi's yoke. And so the rabbi would invite you to go. But again, remember, it's the cream of the crop, the top of the top of the top. What makes it impossible, yes, I'll say, impossible, that this rabbi would come by the Sea of Galilee and call these four men in their fishing boats is the fact that they were fishermen. Literally, they're in a trade. They're in a profession. They're not boys anymore. They did not pass the test. They're not the best. They might have been pretty good students, but they're not the best. No rabbi would have even looked at them. Look at the two young boys, James and John. They're with their dad in the boat, literally learning how to be a fisherman because they're done their education. They're not the best of the best. So why would Jesus call them? Why would the rabbi say, you follow me? Rabbis would be careful who they'd ask because they needed someone who could really get it. They needed to call the very best so they could actually live out their life. Why would Jesus call us? These deficient ones that we are, very Galilean. Disciples? Why? Because he decided. Because he speaks that word of declaration over them. Because the rabbi says so. I mean, can you imagine... These guys walking around after Jesus for a while, everyone in town would know they're fishermen. They stunk like fish. They'd know you guys are tradesmen. That's fine. That's a wonderful profession, but you're clearly not the best of the best. What are you doing following the rabbi? You're not supposed to be here. All they could say is the rabbi told me to come. I'm here because the rabbi said so. That's all I can say. And that's all we can say. This is the good news, friends, is that it's not because we have somehow overcome our deficiencies, that we've deserved this somehow. Now it's because he has declared, you shall be my disciple. And that word of the master is enough. It's interesting when you look at verse 19, 20, 21, 22, you see the power of his words. You see, verse 19, he says to Simon and Andrew, follow me. Verse 20, immediately they followed him. Verse 21, he says to James and John, he called them. Verse 22, immediately they followed him. The words are barely out of Jesus' mouth, and then they're obeying them. Because let's remember that this call is not a suggestion or an option, it's a command, it's an imperative. He doesn't say, hey guys, if you got nothing else to do, you know, maybe this should be considered as an option. Maybe be my disciple. He's not saying, you know, if you get to that place in your life and you're thinking, this just isn't, my current trajectory is just not fulfilling me, maybe then you want to opt into this new plan of discipleship. No, he says, follow. And they follow. Should we be so surprised? He who says, rise and walk and makes lame men dance, he who speaks into tombs, come out, and dead men rise. He who speaks over sea storms, silent, be still, and the elements are muzzled. He who says, be gone, and Satan flees from him, this same one says to you and I and these four men, follow me. And guess what? We follow. He speaks and listening to his voice, New life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice. The humble poor believe. Wesley got it right. It's like the words of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8, verse 8, who says to Jesus, Just say the word, and my servant shall be healed. Just say the word. The power of Jesus' word spoken over our lives. You may say, okay, that, that's great. Jesus has spoken this word, but if it's so authoritative, how do people end up back in their fishing boats? Right? How do they end up back in waywardness? How do they, be, how do they lapse? How do they become prodigals? If Jesus' word is so effective and so powerful, then how does that happen? And the answer is that though Jesus' word absolutely must be obeyed. He doesn't override our wills in such a way that we can't resist. For love is not truly love unless it's freely offered. He doesn't override us in such a way that we cannot resist and push back. Oh, we spend our lives pushing back against God. We are changeable. He doesn't change. We struggle still. He remains eternal. His word is final over us. There's a prayer from Compline, night prayer, that we would say with our children before bed. That says this, it says, we, you know, protect us through the night so that we who are wearied by the changes and chances of this fleeting world may repose upon your eternal changelessness. Everything around us, everything in us can feel changeable, but God does not change. Hebrews chapter 13, verse eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He who says to you, be my disciple, does not change his mind. It's interesting that this discipleship story begins at the Sea of Galilee, but it will also return to the sea of galilee at the end of the story. And here we are at the sea of galilee and Jesus calls, "Follow me." And they follow. But at the end of the gospels, we're going to find them back at the sea of galilee after Jesus has died on the cross bearing the sins of humanity, all the galileanness within them, everything wrong in them. Jesus is born that, gone to hell on our behalf, risen from the dead. They've seen him. But now they're back at the sea of galilee, John 21. And guess what? Peter's back in a fishing boat. And he says to his disciples he says he says to his brothers, he says I'm going fishing. And he doesn't mean I'm going to go fish for men. He means I'm going back to fishing. Why? Because he's facing down his failure. He's denied Jesus 3 times. In the moment when it should have counted the most, he was a total failure as a disciple. And the rest of the disciples like him, they all ran. They know their fallenness. They know their frailty. They know how much they failed. They know how Galilean they still are. It seems you can get the boys out of Galilee. You can't get Galilee fully out of the boys. So I'm going to go fishing. And Jesus meets them again. As failures, as deficient ones in that boat. And what does he say in John 21? Verse 18 through the end. It's somewhere in there. I think it's verse 21, 22. He says, follow me. He says to Peter the identical words, follow me. My word over your life has not changed because of your failure. My word remains eternally. You know, we have a stone at the back of the church. It's our baptismal font. That stone is from the Sea of Galilee. We brought it here. Father David brought it here so that it could be this Ebenezer-like stone, this baptismal font for us as we come in every Sunday. Friends, we end up back at the Sea of Galilee again and again. We end up back in our fishing boats because of our failures. And the God who called us to follow him will call us yet again and again and again. Jesus is not surprised that Peter's back in the fishing boat, is he? No, he he knows just how Galilean Peter is. He knows what it will take to turn a deficient one truly into a disciple. He knows what it takes. He went to the cross. And as we come in here each week and we see those waters of baptism, when we come to the rail, we rehearse again the cost of what it took to make us disciples. You know, we often talk about the cost of discipleship like it's our cost. You know, they had to leave their boats, they had to leave their nets, they had to leave their father, right? There's always something that gets left behind from us. That's the cost of discipleship. But consider the greater cost of discipleship, the cost that Jesus bore to disciple us. Dying, pouring out his own lifeblood for us. We come in, we see that Sea of Galilee rock. We come to the rail and we're reminded of just how much of a cost Jesus paid. The body of Christ given for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. This is what we are. Whether we feel like it, whether we're feeling like we're flunking out, this is what we are and who we are because he said follow. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. You know, as I close in my freshman year of college, I stopped going to church. I mean, I had a dramatic conversion just before my senior year of high school. I was 17. I turned to Jesus and man, I was rocking that Jesus thing for the 12th grade year. For my my senior year, I was all about Jesus. I went on a mission trip. I was running the youth group. It was all about Jesus all the time. I was even trying to find a Jesus girlfriend. And I did. But then I went to college. And I went the first Sunday to church. And then I stopped going for the whole rest of the year. And I wasn't reading my Bible. And no, I wasn't praying except during midterms. I was not praying. I was not living like a disciple at all. And it it cascaded every time I thought about it, it made me feel even worse, which became an even greater burden of even trying to go back. And at the end of my freshman year, I got a phone call from my pastor at my home church. and I thought, oh no, here we go. And he said, hey, Paul, just wanna let you know, the church council just meant we wanna invest in you as a future church leader. So we wanna fully pay for you to go to a church conference down in Chicago this summer. And I said, I got to admit, I'm sorry. I, I'm not going to church. I'm not really a disciple right now. I, I'm not really living like a Christian. And there's a big long pause after my confession. I thought, oh no, here we go. And then he said, I'll never forget these words. He said, Paul, you are a disciple whether you feel like it or not because Jesus called you to be a disciple. And so maybe this church conference is exactly what you need right now. So you should go. And I went. And it was at that church conference that for the first time I began to articulate before God that maybe I was called to be a pastor. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me is not without effect. Every once in a while, every disciple ends up back in our fishing boats. Or at least we're on the verge of getting back in them. I don't know what kind of year you've had as far as failures are concerned. I don't know what kind of week you've had. Or if you're fearful that a failure is right around the corner. But here's the truth. Here's the good news of God in Jesus Christ. That he, Jesus, takes We who are deficient, so very Galilean. And he makes us his disciples. Teaches us to live his life, to learn his life. Fills us with the Holy Spirit to empower us for a new kind of life, step by step, day by day. And it's not because we deserve it. It's not because we did deserve it or we deserve it now. It's because he has declared it over us. Friends, this is the good news. He has said, follow me. And if you've not heard that word, follow me, you're hearing it today. He's speaking that word over you for the first time or for the 400th time, but his word has its effect. Oh, how I love to tell the gospel. He who began a good work in you He who began a good work in you, O wayward one or fearful of becoming wayward, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. This is the gospel of what it means to follow Jesus. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.